This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Hi, and welcome to Discovery. We have four student podcasts for you to enjoy this week. First up, Ankit Banerjee talks with one of the founders of Android Authority about how an unlikely outburst in a coffee shop in Laos led to the tech and entertainment media company in Canada. Hello and welcome. I'm Ankit Banerjee, and today I'll be talking to Darcy Lackaway, one of the owners of Android Authority, a technology and entertainment digital media company with five websites that receive a collective 25 million views a month. So let's start at the very beginning. Were you always a tech enthusiast? I was quite into all gadgets of all kinds. You know, got my first computer in 1990. I was a PC hardware enthusiast. And so I built computers. And I remember purchasing the world's first uh, flat screen uh, CRT monitor. It was the LG Flatron back in uh, 1999. But I, I, got a, I got my hands on an iPod Touch. And I was just, I was completely blown away. And then I read about Google. And of course, I was very familiar with Google at that point. They were very large back in 2006. You know, they'd been operating for many years and already conquered search and rolled out their email. Of course, they'd acquired YouTube and, and many other things. Even at that point, that, that was just me, like reading them at home, you know, sitting in my chair. And I was actually too scared. I didn't know what to do. I didn't even know where to get started. I had a lot of knowledge and a lot of passion. But it was actually a twist of fate that would lead me uh, you know, to meet Derek. Derek Scott is the other founder and owner of Android Authority. You mentioned a twist of fate. What was it that led you to Derek? It was me losing my job. And I'm extremely grateful for that. It was also 2007, so there was the financial crisis at the time. It wasn't a crisis to me because I had nothing to lose. So... The combination of getting back to my dream, having nothing to lose, and having my back against the wall, it gave me the opportunity to have the courage to, to, to leave the, the, my homeland, to leave Canada, and to travel around the world by myself, um, looking for some purpose or some meaning. And so, yeah, I, I, I ended up in Laos. And that's where you met Derek? To set the scene, I... You know, I, <laughs> I had less than $20 to my name. And all the banks back home had closed my accounts because I couldn't afford to pay the, the fees, which were over $1,000 a month, and I, I didn't have that. And so I was really on my last legs. I was in a coffee shop teaching four Japanese guys English, and they were paying me $25 US an hour. So one hour of my work was more money than I had in all of my life at the time. <laughs> anyway, so I was teaching them, and at the end I said, Established economies don't want to foster critical thinking because it enables the populace to question the status quo. And I hear this booming voice behind me and I look behind and there's this like large, physically large, lot of facial hair and kind of long hair. But the one thing I'll never forget is he had a 17 inch MacBook. And I was like, whoa, that's another Caucasian guy. <laughs> and he's rocking a MacBook. And I, you know, and I was just kind of intrigued. And so, but he stood up at the time and he's like, yeah, you guys, you need to listen to what this guy's saying. Like, he knows what he's talking about. And I was like, well, with my little bow tie. And I was like, who's this gentleman? <laughs> and 
I, I, I was intrigued. And so they, they said, thank me for the class. And I, I went over and I walked over to Derek and I said, hi. So that's where Android Authority started. And then I got a call from Derek. Dars, remember, remember you were talking about that thing? I was like, yeah, yeah. He's like, there's a website. I think it was a great name. It's available. Android Authority. What do you think? And I just like, my whole body was just spine tingling. And he was in the, I think it's called 4,000 Islands in Laos. And you have to appreciate Laos is a very remote country, you know, 6 million people. And it doesn't have the best infrastructure. And so uh, the connection kept dropping out as I'm trying to listen to him. So great, Android. <laughs> but I was just so excited it didn't matter. And the call kept dropping and we kept reconnecting. We called each other back like 30 times. We didn't have enough money to buy the domain. You know, had to call back home, call my brother, you know, had to sell all my possessions. You know, sold my car, sold everything. And, but even after we finally came to terms, um, we had to wait like a long time. But that was the start of what would begin a very long journey. It was a long journey, but how did it go at the beginning? You know, making less than a dollar a day, right? For a year. And I was really, really slim. <laughs> but yeah, it was beans and rice. Beans and rice, right? With every dollar that we made more, we invested back into the company. But it was a very harrowing journey, Ankit, and... Even even after enjoying a bit of success, um, you know, we had we had a, a correction via the Google algorithm, the Penguin update. I think it was in May 2012, and you know, we had an 85, 90 percent drop in traffic, down from 10 million down to one, and uh, we had fixed costs at the time. You know, and I had to sleep on my friend's floor. Thankfully, they had a nice little single mattress for me and a, and a sleeping bag. But it was, it's been a very humbling journey, and I'm grateful to be able to remember those things. Because, you know, they make us, you know, what we are. How does it feel to go from a blog to a media company that remains privately owned? Like, there are giants all around us, you know, and there's significant media, you know, consolidation. The amount of media that people get to read that is, you know, kind of privately owned or it doesn't have like a vested financial interest or isn't part of a conglomerate or isn't publicly traded is actually in the single digit percentages. I think... Yeah, it's a, it's a privilege to be a part of the space. It's a, it, it keeps you hungry and thirsty uh, because the competition is so fierce. I never tried to look at it as though there was one particular metric that mattered most. The one thing actually that mattered most to me was how well we were able to take care of our team and the quality content that we were able to put out. I mean, I know it's great to have a lot of traffic, uh, but at the end of the day, it's about the content and the team. I will say I, I do take a lot of pride in the notion that there really is no overarching party or body or kind of, you know, anyone, a board or investor or, or anyone or any company, you know, that can tell us what to do. It wouldn't be an interview in 2022 without a question about COVID. How did the pandemic affect Android Authority? I mean, we were prepared um, as a mobile first organization prior to coronavirus. So when coronavirus came, our operations weren't affected at all. Whereas we saw like people's lives getting like torn apart. You know, they have to work at home now with their partner. It's like, what? <laughs> it's not easy. What are you looking forward to next in the technology world? What am I looking forward to? I mean, it's it's innovation. I mean, I got my first smartphone. I mean, I got the Galaxy S2 in like 2011, maybe 2010, 2010, I think. 
but and, and that was amazing right but so i didn't have that i mean i had that 12 years ago so i'm 38 now so i was 26 whereas like i i've seen my little cousins and others you know that are six or five you know with an ipad or an iphone so i i think uh i think it's very exciting in the future thank you so much for taking the time that was darcy lackaway and i'm ankit banerjee for say radio until next time Next up, Gurjo Gill talks to a mother and lawyer about her efforts to create a special family place in her Cabbage Town neighborhood. Skating is one of the most popular social events to do in Canada during the winter months. Skating can be a break from the world, a cute date, and something a family can do to bond. Welcome to the one and only episode of the Remarkable Person podcast. My name is Gurjo Gill, and today my guide is Trish Frinkelson, who has over the past few years created her own rink in the Cabbage Down community in Toronto. Trish, how did this idea and everything come about? I've always been really active in the neighborhood, doing all kinds of things, being on the Residents Association board and that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, last year, the city was offering permits to communities that wanted to do outdoor rinks. And then one of my friends just said, well, if anybody can build a rink, like you can build a rink. So why don't you do it? <laughs> so I, I did. With the city offering that up, it seemed like a great opportunity to do something new. Building a new rink, however, has some challenges of its own. For you, what are some of the biggest issues you've had come across with building this whole rink? Whenever you're building an outdoor rink, actually, your biggest enemy is the weather. Because people don't realize that all the city rinks that are city run are refrigerated. They're not natural ice rinks. Ours is a, it's, it's on the grass. It's all weather dependent. Yeah, the weather can be very unpredictable in Canada. You think in Canada, these rinks would last and be easy to take care of for most of the year due to our harsh winters. With the unpredictable Toronto weather, how long does the rink usually last in the winter? It only lasts about a month and a half, right? We don't have cold enough weather here in Southern Ontario to maintain a rink for an entire winter. So it kind of gets put up mid to late January and it lasts until maybe like the first week in March if we're lucky. And then it gets too warm. Wow, that's it? Only a month and a half? That doesn't seem that long, but the winters here in Toronto and Canada are very tricky. Some days we're going to be straight in the negatives, and some other days we're going to be right next to that zero degree mark on the border on the positive and negative side. With a rink like this, you have to be able to take care of it or or else it's hard to really skate on. How are you able to figure it out and clean the ice when it's been skating on all day? A home bony. So I I just used a garbage can and like drilled holes in it and built pipes and a valve system and you just dump hot water in it and then drag it around the ice and it smooths the ice. <laughs> a home bony. I really like that name. It's a, it's a catchy name and something that you don't really hear much of. I've never really seen someone make that before. So it's actually really cool to hear, you know, what you've done and all the steps you've made to really create something like that. I'm sure many people have skated on normal rinks before, but skating on an outdoor rink has a different feel to it, has a different energy to it. Cause it's a different than a normal ice that's consistently clean. That's, properly maintained and treated if someone really wanted to try and skate and try out your ice how would they go about doing it so what people do is they book their time like i've set up a booking system people book their time and you get a half an hour of personal skate time where it's just you and the people that you've invited to skate with you seems like a little bit of an easy system you know just book your time and come and 
to do your skating and it seems like a good system and something you can do really easily with the restrictions in the past few years it honestly seems like a great idea for friends to do it and get together and not only do it safely but still have a good time with the rink creation and the maintainment i know that's not the only thing you've been doing for your own community you put together a skate drive last year to get as many skates as you could how many did you get and what are you planning to do with all the skates that you got got actually in the end we got about 50 pairs of skates and actually I just went to just hockey and they sharpened all the skates for me and we're going to do a giveaway in a couple of weeks and the intended recipients of the skates are people that not people that haven't bothered to get skates but people that like can't afford skates or you know there's a barrier to them kind of getting skates so that's who the intended recipients are that's a lot of skates that you got. 50 skates is a lot. And I'm sure that those skates are going to go into a lot of good hands. And as someone that's played hockey in the past, I know for a fact that skates can be very expensive and very hard to afford in today's financial climate with everything going on in the world, not only now, but obviously in the recent past few years. Skating is just another activity that used to be a staple in your community with a rink in the same spot. But I heard that it went away a long time ago. What happened? There used to be a rink there years and years and years ago like 30, 40 years ago, and then it just stopped getting built. And you can, people walking by are reminiscing and like loving that it's back. Bringing something back from the past is always great because for the people that were around during that time or maybe heard about it from, you know, their parents, uh, they can bring back memory for them, but also for the newer generation that wasn't around for that time, it allows them to create memories and create new memories that they can hold and cherish for the rest of their lives. Now, Trish, I got one last question for you. Now that you built this rink and kept it sustained for the last few years, what is your goal for the future of the rink? What do you want to happen and what is your plans in all of this? My goal is to have it, for, you know, built for at least five years, but I don't, I don't really want to do it for the rest of my life. So my goal is to get it up operational and sort of, you know, a seamless operation so that anybody else can take it over at any time so that it's a sustainable project. That's a great goal to have. This rink be a staple for the community, not only for this generation, but also the future ones would be great for the Cabbage Town community as a whole. I look forward to getting out there and hopefully getting a skate or two in with some of my friends before the warm weather makes the rink melt with all the natural ice. Thank you for joining me again today, Trish. It's been a great conversation that we've had, and I hope to see what the future holds, not only for the rink, but also your skate drive, and I wish you the best of luck. If anyone's listening and wants to get a skate in, you can find all the information about the rink and how to book a slot on Facebook with the page called The Wink at Winchester. It's Wink with a W, not an R. That's it for the Remarkable Person podcast. Thank you all for listening. And for saying news, I'm Gujo Gill in Toronto. Tashina Thompson now discusses why millennials are turning to cosmetic surgery at a younger age than previous generations. Why be you when you can be me? You're before photograph. Perfect image package. Oh, why be you when you can be me? Hello to my favorite beauty queens and kings, and welcome to My Beauty Politics for a pretty different episode three. Every 10 years, your body cells regenerate your skeletal system. More rapidly, your skin rejuvenates every two to four weeks. Your liver replaces its cells every 150 to 500 days. And the cells that line your stomach and intestines only last up to five days. And all the while this is happening, the beauty trends outside of your body are changing just as rapidly. 
Every some years, the beauty standard in North America changes. As new styles come to light, life events occur, and art is showcased to the masses, our definition of beauty and what's in changes too. Remember, not so long ago in the 1400s, how eyelids with plucked eyelashes was a vital look. Then, big eyes with twiggy eyelashes of the 1970s was who recalls the tiny pinched waist of the 1950s? And just 20 years prior, the fuller curved body was the most ideal for a woman to have. But closer to our time, unless the 1950s is your time, in the early 2000s, breast implants, Botox, and liposuction were, and still are, all the rage. And women, younger and younger, are going under the knife to achieve today's trending body and facial style at any cost. A study from the American Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery suggests that millennials, roughly between 23 and 38 years old, have increased the demand for plastic surgery procedures due to their fixation with self-care and growing up with social media. Millennials in particular are requesting surgery to look more like their false appearance in Snapchat filters. According to Dr. Alyssa Golos, clinical assistant professor of plastic surgery at NYU Langone Health, Snapchat gives people an idea of what they want to change about themselves in ways that aren't necessarily possible and reminds us that the ideal of beauty evolves over time. In 2020 alone, the New York Times reported that there were 40,320 Botox augmentations. This includes both implants and fat grafting. The desired look is being heavily promoted as the ideal body shape, little waist with a large rump from celebrities in the Kardashian family and Instagram models. This blazing trend that is only surging in popularity is called the Brazilian butt lift and has been dubbed as being notoriously the most dangerous operation, having the highest mortality rate of any cosmetic surgery. Mortality rate as in death rate. Less than five years ago in 2018, surgeons in the United Kingdom were advised by the British Association of Aesthetic and Plastic Surgery to completely stop performing the procedure due to yet another British woman's Brazilian butt lift-related death. In that same year, it was reported by the American Society of Plastic Surgeons that the BBL, Brazilian butt lift, death rate was 1 in 3,000. Improvements have been made, and in 2021, it was published by the Aesthetic Surgery Education and Research Foundation that the estimated death rate is now 1 in 14,952. The trend of having the large bum and small waist and facial features of plump lips and high cheekbones are closer to the appearance of women of certain countries in Africa. And as I said, certain. Not all women of African descent possess all features to the degree that is circulating, having them as well feel the need to risk their health to look like the times. Not so long ago, having a large bum and big lips was seen as too much and unattractive. Oh, how the times have changed. But why is the BBL so deadly? The reason the Brazilian butt lift is so dangerous is because your bum bum 
contains a multitude of blood vessels. Some of our blood vessels are as large as common drinking straws. These vessels drain into the inferior vena cava, a large vein that is a direct line to the heart. With a BBL, fat is injected into the buttocks with a cannula, a large metal tube. It is sometimes difficult for doctors to know where exactly they're injecting into and sometimes mistakenly inject fat into the glutinal muscle or far too close to it. Fat can then travel directly to the heart and into the lungs, obstructing blood flow and causing immediate death. Yeah, unlike previous generations, millennials are not waiting until they're old to get fillers and Botox to make them appear younger. They're more apt to undergo procedures in their 20s and 30s to enhance or maintain a more youthful look. Doctors say there has been a noticeable increase in millennials having facelift procedures. Normally, age groups 50 plus request this procedure to reverse their visible aging by 20 years. One can imagine that would be a pretty drastic difference. But for young people in their 20s and 30s, they typically seek to have 5 to 10 years taken off. The change is less drastic, giving a more believable result. As well, the younger patient receives less recovery time compared to an older patient. The cosmetic industry has been booming during the pandemic. Due to COVID-19 restrictions, people have been spending more time on social platforms. Schools are online and many companies have opted for at-home work. Because of all this, people more than ever are getting a good look at their faces and its details. And Zoom does not have enough filters. <laughs> but all jokes aside, keep in mind listeners, once you go under the knife for plastic surgery, you can never fully get back your natural appearance. But revisions are possible. But pleasant results are never guaranteed. So always be sure your decision is solely about your own version of self-improvement and not about the trends. As the trends come and they go. I'm Shan Thompson, and you have a genuine self-love healthy day. See you next week. Tyler Lander now looks at the rise of Blizzard Entertainment, creators of World of Warcraft and Overwatch. A soft, soothing song. Something a lot of people felt their first time leaving Northshire Valley and heading into Elwyn Forest. World of Warcraft was and still is a game many people play to this day. A staple in gaming, being one of the most, if not most, popular massively multiplayer online game of all time. The creators of this game, Blizzard Entertainment, have gone through many different eras but have remained one of the kingpins of all gaming. Just how did they accomplish this? Well, sit back and relax and welcome to Blizzard Entertainment, the rise and fall of an empire. Since 2004, World of Warcraft has been considered the most popular massively multiplayer online, or MMO for short, game of all time. Before we delve into the prime game that rose Blizzard Entertainment to elite status, let's take a look at a time before their popularity.
1991, Blizzard Entertainment began as Silicone and Synapse with three founding members, Alan Adham, Michael Morhaime, and Frank Pierce. These three started their firm in Irvine, California as a third-party developer to work on software to support other games. Some of the companies they helped support were two big names, Sega and Nintendo. Fast forward three years later to 1994, and Silicon and Synapse changed their name to the current Blizzard Entertainment and released their first game. In the age of chaos, two factions battled for dominance. The kingdom of Azeroth was a prosperous one. The humans who dwelled there turned the land into a paradise. The Knights of Stormwind and the Clerics of... Warcraft, Orcs vs. Humans, their first game, ended up being praised as one of the best strategy games of the year. During the same year as the release, Blizzard Entertainment was bought by Davidson & Associates for a small amount of $7 million. This wouldn't be the only company to acquire Blizzard Entertainment. In 1995, Blizzard released Warcraft 2, Tides of Darkness, and acquired Condor Inc., a fellow Californian gaming company. After rebranding Condor Inc. into Blizzard North, the team got to work on Blizzard Entertainment's next biggest hit, Diablo. Diablo was the best-selling game of 1997. Around the same time, David and Associates would go on to be bought by a larger company called CUC International, which included Blizzard Entertainment. CUC then later combined with HFS, owner of brands such as Howard Johnson and Days In. These companies came together to create Sendent. During this time, Blizzard had 11 software designers leave the team, and the founders of Blizzard North resigned from the company due to creative restraints from this new combined parent company. Just a year later, in 1998, Sendent announced the selling of its software division, which included Blizzard Entertainment. The founders of Blizzard remained unfazed, as in 2000, they released Diablo 2. Entering the new millennium, MMOs reached a new popularity. Some of Blizzard's competitors like Sony and Interactive Studios were creating new and exciting online games such as EverQuest. In 2002, Blizzard would release its finale of the trilogy of Warcraft, Warcraft 3 Reign of Chaos, which was documented by the company as the fastest selling PC game ever. So much so that they release an expansion Warcraft 3 The Frozen Throne a year later. With such high sales across all their games, Blizzard's revenue was an approximate total of $750 million. At the time, Blizzard was owned by Vivendi, who wanted to shed them, despite making up over 10% of their total revenue. Friction grew between the two, which led to four of Blizzard's top game developers leaving in 2003. Over the next two years, Blizzard would see itself losing more key designers, and one of the original co-founders, Alan Adham. And that's when 2004 came, the year of World of Warcraft's release, an astounding 1.5 million subscribers on its release in North America, a whopping 280,000 copies sold on its first day released in Europe, and eventually China outnumbered the amount of North American players. 
World of Warcraft was and still is a subscription-based game. A $15 a month fee is required in order to play, a formula that was used by competitor NCSoft in Korea. NCSoft had a 1.8 million subscriber base, which was a total on a combination on their two highest played games, and in mid-2005, Blizzard demolished that number with a staggering 5 million subscribers. What made World of Warcraft such a success was a large vast world where people got together to complete quests, conquer dungeons, and defeat high-end bosses that required 40 people. The game created its own social status that people looked forward to getting home, opening up the game, and chatting with like-minded people. Thus started the success of World of Warcraft, which led to Blizzard Entertainment becoming the top leading gaming company at the time. With the immense sales World of Warcraft was bringing in, the tension between Vivendi and Blizzard settled, and the bad blood dissipated. But this was only the start for Blizzard, and they weren't even at their peak. It's been 18 years since the release of World of Warcraft, and the game still survives. What turmoil, challenges, and problems did Blizzard face in the last 18 years? You'll just have to wait and listen next week. Until then, I'm Tyler Lander for Say News, and you've been listening to Blizzard Entertainment, the rise and fall of an empire. If you'd like to hear more podcasts from Seneca Journalism students, go to SenecaJournalism.ca. Thanks for listening. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.